0: I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 29, and we're going to take the whole chapter. This is the Word of God. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him, and do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely, as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out, and you're coming in with me, and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, But what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our glory to study it, to understand it. You have said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And Father, we want to live by the words that we read in this passage right now, and we ask for your favor, for your Holy Spirit's guidance as we look into this. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now even though there is a debate on this, there's people on both sides, obviously I'm on the other side, Uh, but um, there are most Christians, I would say, uh, take the position that the trouble that David found himself in in this chapter was his own fault. Uh, They don't show a whole lot of sympathy uh, for David. And uh, they say David was in trouble because he left Israel against God's will, because he was backslidden, because he was self-seeking, because he didn't pray, because he didn't trust God, because he independently set up his own civil government, etc. And if you weren't here when I preached on chapter 27, uh, you can find uh, the information in that sermon on why I believe that those uh, theories are absolutely uh, wrong. In fact, I take on every one of those myths and show that every one is contradicted explicitly in some other scripture. And I won't take the time to uh, to repeat that. But I thought it would be helpful for you to know up front, I don't think David is living in rebellion here. I think David is walking by faith in God. Now there's a second misconception that I think it's important for us to think about uh, up front, and we've already dealt with this one as well, but uh, there are people who say that David should not have marched against Saul. He shouldn't even pretended to have marched against Saul, that this was a sin. And I believe that marching against Saul was only one possible contingency that David had in his mind at this point, but even if it was the only possibility, I still do not think that it was uh, Unbiblical. And uh, I can't repeat all of the evidence, but let me give you a brief review of some of the ways in which David has related to David. I mean, David has related to Saul. Up until chapter 21, David has been unbelievably loyal to Saul, sacrificial, risking his life on behalf of Saul. And he's done that despite the fact that Saul has been very mean-spirited toward him and even attempted to kill him. Uh, In chapter 21, he fled in order to save his life, and to refuse to do so would have been suicidal. And it just boggles my mind that there are quite a few people out there that say uh, that David should have just stayed there. He was in sin by fleeing. He should have just stayed there and trusted the Lord. That is a totally faulty view of a trust that is presumption. So anyway, David fled, and Christ, by the way, authorizes this. He, he commanded his disciples, when you're persecuted in one city, flee to another city. It's perfectly legitimate. But uh, anyway, he fled, and um, that is a form of passive resistance to tyranny. But just because David was authorized to have one form of resistance to tyranny does not mean every form of resistance to tyranny was authorized to him. So even though 400 men joined him in chapter 22, he refused to fight against Saul. And actually on two occasions, it was within his power to get rid of the problem right then and there. It would have been so simple, and yet he refused to kill Saul, though he had the opportunity. In fact, he risked the anger of his men. His men thought, this is crazy, what are you doing that? But he was in effect saying, I don't have the jurisdiction to do this. This would be a sin against God. But things changed in chapter 23. The mayor of Calah asked David to join him in fighting against the Philistines. Now his men were a little bit nervous about that because this was a dangerous venture, but he, with the guidance of the Lord, went up there. They had a major victory against the Philistines. The whole city of Calah rejoices, and they ask him, Hey, would you make your base of operations in our city? He says, Fine, that would be great. So they take up their position there. And he stays there even when Saul, news of Saul's coming down to Cala to besiege it, reaches him. Now, to me, that's very, very interesting because it indicates that he was willing to fight against Saul if he has the proper jurisdiction, which he would have had in Calah. But by divine revelation, God shows David that uh, the men there are too cowardly to stick with him and fight. In fact, they're going to turn him over to Saul if they have the chance. And so he has no other option but uh, to flee. He could not fight without that kind of jurisdictional covering because at that point he was not a civil magistrate. But the passage is clear. If he had had that civil magistrate's authorization, he would have stayed there. He would have fought against Saul. But uh, without it, he didn't have a choice. So again, this shows David was not a revolutionary. And that is illustrated again in chapter 24, where David had a chance to kill Saul, but because he lacked jurisdiction, he refused. In chapter 25, Samuel dies, and a new kind of resistance opportunity comes up. He goes to the funeral... And he hobnobs with the leaders who are at that funeral. I I believe there's evidence, and we talked about the evidence, that he was hoping that these leaders would engage in interposition against Saul, forcing him to step down, putting him onto the throne. He was, after all, uh, anointed by God to be the king. They don't do it. They refuse to engage in interposition. Again, he has no choice but to flee. Uh, then in chapter 26, David spared Saul's life a second time, giving as his reason. He has no jurisdiction as a private citizen. It's always the issue of jurisdiction. But things changed when he became king in chapter 27. Now David declares war on the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. This is not self-defense. This is one nation, because he's now the magistrate of Zigglag, declaring war, even offensive war, against other nations. And then in chapter 28, David professes that he's quite willing to fight against Saul, and in this chapter, he actually marches out against Saul. Now, I believe the only way that you can reconcile—I've done quite a bit of study on this— the only way you can reconcile all of those different passages is with the Reformed doctrine that armed resistance to tyranny— can only happen when it is authorized by a civil magistrate who has declared war. And if you want to know a little bit more about that, there's an excellent book uh, written in the 1500s by a French Huguenot, uh, a Reformed uh, theologian and warrior um, who had the pen name of Junius Brutus. It's called A Defense of Liberty Against Tyrants. You can download it for free off of the Biblical Blueprints website, and it gives all kinds of different uh, biblical ways of resisting tyranny there. Great book. Now, of course, there's a whole lot more to the story than that, but I wanted to at least have us cool our heels if when we're reading this passage we're thinking, oh, David's in sin. He cannot be doing that. There is really no basis for saying that what David is doing here is wrong. And I believe that the writer of this book makes that clear actually in this chapter itself, especially verses 3 through 5, where he uses a literary technique to indicate that what these Philistines are thinking David might do is really in David's mind. Okay, let's take a look at the options that David had. Verse 1 says, Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies, and I want you to notice that phrase, all their armies, at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by the fountain which is in Jezreel. Now if you look at the map that's in your bulletins there, you'll notice two things. First of all, the distance from the top of the map down to the bottom of the map where Aphek is, is about 45 miles. You have to travel a further 40 miles before you even get to the first of the main Philistine cities. There were five main Philistine cities that were below, and this is one of the reasons why verse 11 says, David went back to the land of the Philistines. Now, on this map, it shows that the Philistines actually owned what was up here, but this was recently conquered territory. They hadn't owned that previously, recently conquered. So they have traveled all the way up from their main territory, and all their armies are gone. What this means, and we're going to be talking about this in a moment, is all of Philistia is vulnerable. All of their defenses are gone in this offensive warfare. The other thing I want you to notice is that this Philistine expansion was threatening to cut Israel in half, and potentially even to take all of Israel over, but especially the southern uh, portion uh, of Israel. And as Israel's future king, David can't just sit by and do nothing. With all the armies concentrating on this northward expansion, he's got several options that are before him. And the first option would have been to stay in Ziklag and when the philistines go north to take advantage of the weakness by conquering perhaps some of the southern towns now there wouldn't have been any armies there and that would have aided israel while letting the philistine armies deal with the threat of saul uh, up north but the author has already told us in chapter 28 that this option has been completely closed off in fact let's go ahead and read that chapter 28 verses 1 and 2 Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel, and Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. So David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever." Well, this indicates that Achish isn't entirely stupid. Um, (laughs) He has had a a very profitable relationship with David because David's been going out on all of these raids, which Achish thinks are raids against Israel, and Achish gets a huge cut of all of the plunder that David has uh, brought home. So he valued David and his men, but neither did he want David's army to be down south while all of his armies up north, it's probably better, it's safer to have David along with him. Now, of course, this closes off the opportunity for David to move his city elsewhere if he was so inclined to do that. I mean, he could have, if he had had the chance, have um, had an evacuation, you know, and taken all of the people that were in the city elsewhere, the men, the women, and the children. But this request from Achish makes that impossible. closes the door providentially and only leaves two options left for David. He could take the option of fighting with the Philistines against Saul and then fight against the Philistines at his leisure either in this battle or some future battle Uh, but uh, depending on what God providentially opened up and we've already seen this would have been legitimate and uh, just think of it, Saul's been rejected by God very very clearly David has been anointed by God Israel isn't showing the kind of uh, metal that they should have in resisting his centralization. And um, uh, because David was uh, now king of Ziklag and Saul had declared war on David, it would have been perfectly justifiable for him to go to battle. I believe this would have been the least attractive of the options for David, but it was one option. The last option was that David was... Um, would go with the army, and this was actually an option that would have been, I think, pretty familiar with David from his history. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 14 and see this option. I think this was an option, almost every commentary I've read said that the Philistines were alluding to this. This is an option that they were aware of as well. Um, Chapter 14, verses 20 and 21. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, and this is the key phrase, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Now, commentators say that this is talking about Israelites who had been conscripted into the Philistine army. They were wearing all of the Philistine uh, armor, their uniform, and when they saw the direction that the battle was going, they decided, hey, we're going to join in this fight against the Philistines as well, and they completely routed them, and then there were other Israelites who came into the battle as well. Now, before the battle happens, David doesn't know how the Philistines are going to mix them into the army, uh, it, 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 it's maybe not clear, but I believe he's probably instructed his captains on what kinds of contingencies, what kinds of plans that they might have, depending on what God providentially opens up. It's an incredible risk taking, but David tends to see opportunities, not simply obstacles. And this could be an opportunity. And an amazing opportunity comes up when he finds out that Achish has been assigned the rear guard position. Verse 2. We're back in chapter 29, verse 2. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. This was ideal. Uh, The rear guard was a crucial position, and narrowly defined, Uh, the rear guard was a covering detachment. What it did, it protected the main column. uh, If they needed to retreat, and they did it by um, retrograde and defensive actions between the enemy and the main body while they're retreating, another thing the rear guard would do is if the enemy flanked you and came around behind, then they would, again, protect the main body uh, through their fighting. Now, because of the ferocious nature of this uh, fighting and the the high numbers of casualties that frequently happened, many times it was the best soldiers, uh, some of the bravest soldiers that were in uh, that position. And so really this is an honor that's being given to Akish, and Akish in turn is honoring David. But from David's perspective, this is an unbelievable opportunity because... Four of the lords are going to be totally occupied with Saul up in the front there as he's spread out in the Jezreel Valley. David's going to be coming up behind these guys. Can you see there's a trap that is there and I can just see David saying, Oh, perfect. Praise the Lord. I know exactly what God wants me to do in this situation between Saul's forces and our forces, we can decimate uh, the Philistines in, in this upcoming battle. And so he's thinking, providentially, yes, this is exactly what God wants us to do. And um, it'll be a great opportunity to defend Israel, and as the author creatively suggests in verses 3 through 5, to also regain credibility within Israel. But if David thought that, his hopes were dashed to the ground in the next three, three verses. We aren't really told what David is thinking. There's only hints in the passage. But we, the, the author of this uh, passage lets us be a fly on the wall of the Philistine camp and hear what they're talking about. And the Philistine lords, they're, they're aghast at what Achish was thinking of doing. And I could just hear them saying, are you nuts? You've got to be kidding. Look at verses 3 through 5. Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Well, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? In other words, he's saying, I know who he is, I know who he is, but he's an incredible asset. Believe me, he's an asset. He goes on, and he says, And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. From Achish's perspective... This is a perfect situation. David could not possibly defect to the Israelites. And you've got to remember the ruse that David has been playing against Akish in the past, because David's been going out on all of these raids over the last 16 months, and he's been bringing all of this plunder, and he reports to, gives a bunch of the plunder to Achish and says, oh yeah, we killed this many Israelites, and here's all the booty that we got, and, Akish is thinking, wow, this is fantastic because David is going to be so odious, so such a stench in the nostrils of the Israelites, he's never going to be safe in Israel again by himself. And so he's thinking David's going to have to fight for his life and he's going to fight for the right to continue to be a raider under Akish. Of course this is a great situation. It's a win-win situation. He's going to be loyal to us. But... Um, These other princes uh, think he's insane. Uh, They're really ticked off, uh, and they're obviously seeing something that Achish is blind to. Let's begin reading at verse 4. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him, and do not let him go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary." For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sang to one another, and dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now, Achish has tried to assure them, you can trust David, you know, he's loyal. And they're, in effect, saying uh, that, uh, how can you be so stupid? Now, maybe Akish was too young to remember what happened in chapter 14. Uh, there is evidence that he was the young son of the king of Ekron. So it could be he was too young to remember what happened in chapter 14 when the conscripted Hebrews turned on the Philistines and killed so many. Uh, it just was an absolute destruction. But these other four Philistine princes, they're more seasoned. They're not about to take any chances with these Hebrews. They don't give Achish a suggestion, they give him a commandment. They kick him out of the army, and uh, they, 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 they basically tell him that the decision is final. He's been outvoted. And of course, uh, I think we'd have to agree with the four princes, because it was a suicidal strategy. And to me, this illustrates how blinded people can be when it comes to the three Ps, profit, pride and power how many times do people lose everything that they have because they're greedy with a get quick rich quick scheme and how many times do people make absolutely destructive decisions because of pride uh, i love the last battle in the movie the patriot you know where the british army they're they're going in making a wrong decision that you can see just flows from pride because they're so ticked off at uh, this uh, Patriot. But down through history, you can see many foolish decisions because of the other Ps as well. And what I want to do, I want to quickly look at the specific ways in which Achish was blind. Verse 6, Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright. Now I want you to notice that the word Lord is in all capital letters. And in the New King James Version, time that happens... It's representing the name Jehovah or Yahweh. Okay, I don't know why they don't just transliterate it and leave uh, Yahweh in there. I think it would be preferable. But anyway, commentators have been puzzled as to why a pagan would swear by the name of Yahweh. Why don't they swear by their own God's names? Uh, It doesn't make any sense to them. Philistines would swear by their own gods, not Yahweh. And that first picture in your outline's amazing archaeological find. It's an inscription where the Akish of our passage here in this text dedicates a temple to another god. And it identifies Akish the king of Gath as being the young son of the king of Ekron. Now, was he converted under David? Everybody that I have read on, on Akish here says no. There's no way that he's been converted to Jehovah. So they say, well, if he's not converted to Jehovah, why is he swearing in the name of Jehovah and saying, as Yahweh lives? Why would he do that? Uh, It'd be uh, meaningless to swear in the name of a God that you didn't believe because the whole purpose of swearing is to say, may this God curse me, take away all my blessings, you know, if I'm I'm not lying. If you swear in somebody else's uh, God that you don't believe in, you could care less what he does, right? So why swear in the name of Yahweh? You're only going to swear in the name of a God who benefits you, and you don't want to take off. You don't want to upset because he's going to continue to be uh, somebody who, who blesses you. And uh, one uh, writer said, well, maybe he swore in the name of his God, but just God in general, and the writer inserted Yahweh because he didn't want to give any credit to another God. It's a real No, that, that would be to misrepresent the situation. Um, In this situation, he's quoted, the text is quoting his words. So commentators are puzzled by this, and I believe that the simplest explanation is this. Akish was a polytheist who believed in many gods, and polytheists are quite willing to have any god on their side, the more the merrier. That's why they're polytheists, right? Uh, In India, Hindus are quite willing to accept Jesus as a god, so long as Jesus doesn't make them get rid of all of their other gods, right? Sure, another god. I more the merrier. That, we we like the gods to be on our side. So if you want to have gospel notches on your gospel slingshot, you know how many conversions have you had? Just go to India and have an open-air campaign, and every time you'll get thousands and thousands of people raising their hands. Sure, we'll take Jesus as a God, especially since He's healing people, and especially since, uh, you know, you guys seem rich, and yeah, we'd like to have Jesus, but they're not soundly converted. Um, when, whenever I've gone to India and preached in open-air campaigns, our whole team is always instructed very carefully that there has to be antithesis. We tell them, God will be angry with you, If you do not destroy your idols and renounce your former gods, he is a jealous God who does not want any competition. You must be devoted to him and to him alone. Now, they're not willing to do that because they don't want to offend these other gods unless they're very, very serious. So the 24 or so converts that we've had in India who have renounced their former gods, they still are Christians. Whereas you look at some of these other converts, no. Uh, They're Hindus still. They worship all of the different gods as well as Jesus. You know yeah, why not it doesn 't hurt to uh, uh, worship him just in case okay so here 's w- w- what 's probably what was happened when David came along with his God Yahweh, it was amazing. He magically seems to be protecting these guys. Not a one of these men, despite fighting for sixteen months, going on these aggressive raids, has died. And he's bringing back unbelievable mounts of booty, and of course it's enriching Akish. And he's thinking, wow, this is a powerful God, and it sure is nice having this God in my service as well as all of the other gods that are out there. I just think it's a pragmatic action of a polytheist. He believed Yahweh existed. He was even happy that this God was giving him wealth. So why wouldn't he swear in the name of Yahweh? it be convincing both to him and to David. He didn't want to lose this wealth. He didn't want to lose this God's protection is what he's thinking he's having. So to me, it's not a puzzle at all. And so here's the so what. The first type of blindness is a blindness of thinking that God is on your side when you're not really on his side. And even Christians can fall into this trap. You know, in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua asked the messenger of the covenant, messenger of the Lord, if he was on Joshua's side. Now, this angel of the Lord, this messenger of the Lord, was the pre-incarnate son of God himself. And God is basically telling Joshua, that is not an appropriate question. Here, here, here's what he says. God says, no, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua, in effect, says, Yes, sir. And he immediately waits for God to be giving his commands, and he says, Yes, I am your servant. And uh, Akish had never done that. And that brings us to point B. Who is the commander of Akish? It's not Yahweh. Akish had never renounced his gods or bowed his knee to, uh, to uh, Yahweh or allowed Yahweh to dictate how he ruled. Having Yahweh on his side was a convenience. There's no evidence he repented or that Yahweh had changed his course and the direction of his life. And I want you to notice that that Achish defines good and evil by his own judgment, not Yahweh's. In verse 6, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out, and you're coming in with me in the army, is good in my sight. The reference point is, is himself, is good in my sight. I like what you've been doing. That's good. Yeah anything that benefits me is good he continues for to this day i have found not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me nevertheless the lords do not favor you verse 9 the Achish answered and said to david i know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of god nevertheless the princes of the philistines have said he shall not go up with us into battle so Akish is being pulled between two competing motives, both of which are self-serving. Uh, as a leader, he doesn't want to make the other Philistine lords upset because he needs them to stay in power. So he says, Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore, return now and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. I don't want them getting upset. Okay? He gives the same reason in verse 9. On the other hand, he doesn't want to make David and his men upset either. In fact, I think he's probably a little bit nervous as David and his men are going down there where none of his armies are. You know, we need to keep this guy happy. Uh, and so he needs to be polite. And of course, he's been the power base. He's been the source for the steady, very lucrative income. He doesn't want to lose that. So he has two competing, self-serving motives. And by the way, Akish thinks of, uh, of David and all of his men as his own personal property. Take a look at verse 10. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. Very interesting. With your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So he calls David's army your master's servants. And though this isn't a slam dunk, the Hebrew word uh, most frequently is used, it's avad, usually it means slaves or bondservants owned by a master. So even though he's being polite to David, he didn't treat them as free men. Okay, They are uh, slaves, and he hopes that if David quietly goes away right now, that Achish can hopefully return to the way things were before. And of course, it's very easy for any of us to have our judgment skewed by the three P's of profit, pride, and power. And the only way to avoid that is to crucify self and to have Jesus Christ be our Lord and our commander. Now, there is one more puzzling question that some people are curious about, and that is this. Was David really as upset as verse 8 makes him out to be, or is he putting on a show, or is it a combination of the two? And I'm going to give you a stab at both possibilities or a combination of those two. Verse 8, So David said to Achish, But what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant, as long as I have been with you, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Now some people believe, now David is lying, right? But some people believe David is oh, absolutely relieved that he doesn't have to go into battle, but he doesn't dare admit that he's relieved. One commentator said, there is more than a little humor in this scene. Akish stands there apologetically, emphasizing how he thinks David should go with him in this campaign and extolling David's faithfulness, which he has no reason to extol. On the other hand, David, with disbelief on his face and exasperation in his voice, protests the rejection he has no reason to protest. The deceived defends his deceiver, and the relieved disputes his relief. Yeah, that's a definitely a possible interpretation. I think there is a, an element of truth in that. No matter which way you go, but I tend to favor the viewpoint that even though David is kind of putting on a show here, he is disappointed that he can't go into battle and be a part of a of a definitive and crushing blow to the Philistine forces as they're caught between Saul and uh, and his army. And the way the writer gives the opinion of the four princes in verses 3 through 5, I think it's placed in a way where the reader is going to conclude, they're right, they're exactly right, this is David's plan. But whichever interpretation you take of David's motives, what God does is he closes the door on those options in verses 9 through 11. So David and his men, they rise up early in the morning, they return south to the land of the Philistines, and we only know from hindsight why. Why did God do this? Let me suggest four reasons very quickly why he closed the door. First, God needed to discipline Israel in chapter 30, and he does so. He gives them a good, sound spanking in in that chapter. David's presence here would kind of complicate that, so God has him go out. Second, God wanted David to be tested with yet another short period of darkness, Uh, and, and that's in chapter 30 as well before he can elevate David to the throne. And this was a profound, critical proving ground for David's kingship. Third, God wanted David to come out of this situation with a huge amount of loot uh, so that he can use it in Second Samuel, uh, and we'll, Lord willing, look at that in the future. And then fourth, God wanted to solidify David's leadership with these men. In the next chapter, there is an incredible test of their character and metal. It's almost a superhuman call to endurance. Unbelievable. We'll look at that maybe a couple of weeks from now. So anyway, the door to all four of these contingency plans that were probably in David's man, uh, mind slammed shut. David interprets the providence this way. And he says, okay, well, he interprets it this way, and then he interprets it that way. And every time God closes the door on each of those interpretations. And then finally, he opens up something which is so much better that David had not even anticipated. And we'll look at that in the next few weeks. But I do want to end the sermon by giving five additional applications very quickly. The first is, no matter how impossible our situations may appear to be, we need to approach them by faith that God is at work. Okay? When you do so, you're going to start looking for opportunities. Okay, Lord, I know you're doing something good here. What is the opportunity you've got before me? You're going to be looking for opportunities rather than being so focused on Satan's obstacles. Too many people are Satan focused. They're not God focused, and they're certainly not opportunity focused. God is always at work in your life for your benefit spiritually, financially, socially, in so many different ways. In fact, I love the way that John words it in 3 John 2, that you may prosper in all things and be in health, even as your soul prospers. So he's not just talking about inward prosperity. He's saying, this is my general desire for you, that you prosper in everything. In fact, that was the psalm that we sang earlier, Psalm 144, you know, may your herds increase and, you know, may God bless you with children. So, Even though God sometimes takes these things away from us, this is, generally speaking, God's plan in our lives. He loves us. He loves to bless us. And David, being convinced of that, is looking for the opportunities. What is it, Lord, that you're doing here? I know you're doing something wonderful. Second, be convinced that God can control and even use the citizens and the pagans who are around us, even our enemies fact uh, we wouldn't even be in this venue if it wasn't for the fact that we've had protesters out there right now we weren't intimidated by them in the least but we were looking just in case and we've looked for years for other facilities that were bigger and if it hadn't been for the protesters we wouldn't have looked and we wouldn't have found this fantastic venue so I i guess the point is god can use even your enemies to open your eyes to the opportunities he wants to bless you with Third, be convinced that God's timing is perfect. Now, when we get to chapter 30, David's probably going to be tempted to think that God's timing was absolutely disastrous. It was not. And I have seen God's perfect timing over and over again. Almost on a daily basis, I am amazed at how perfect God's timing is. Fourth, learn that Akish, learn from Akish, that relating to God as if God is a giant vending machine, put in the universe for our benefit is a pagan conception of god it 's a pagan view of life, uh, and we ought to completely get rid of that from our lives. We are his bond servants. we must find pleasure in serving Him. Paganism uses God that 's what paganism 's almost always about polytheism, which god 's going to serve me the best. It uses God. Whereas Christianity says, Lord, use me. So here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Do I have a view of life and a view of God that more resembles Akish, Or does it resemble David, who is willing to be used by the Lord? Fifth, don't be dogmatic that you know what God's providence is dictating. Nothing in life is infallible except for the Bible. It sure looked to David... Like God might be opening up opportunities as all of these armies are going north. Maybe we could do something in the south. God slams that door shut. Then it looks like, okay, maybe God's going to use us to defeat the Philistines up north in Israel. And that even seemed more positive as he becomes the rear guard. Yes, this is exactly what God is doing, but it turns out not to be the case. And then as they're uh, going back south... They might be strategizing among themselves. What is God doing? Maybe he wants us to be attacking the Philistines in the south. And God closes that door uh, with the Amalekites in chapter 30. Now here's the point. Even though we should always be looking for God's opportunities that are out there that we can seize by faith. In fact, that's an absolutely essential component of biblical entrepreneurialism. It's always expecting opportunities that God is putting into your path, and seizing them by faith. So even though that is true, we need to have an attitude that's very humble for God to blue pencil all of our plans in and say, Lord, what is it you're doing? I'm willing to adjust my schedule, my time, my everything to adapt to your providences as we move along. But no matter what God does with your opportunities, no matter what He does, it's always for your good. He cares about you. And he's working everything together for your good. Amen. Father, we thank you for the uh, exemplifications in history of so many principles that we find elsewhere in your word. And I thank you for the exemplification in our lives that uh, you are true to your word, that we can trust your word and implement it day by day. And I pray that you would help this, your people, to do so. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.